Perseverance. It's a tricky word, and not just because I almost always spell it with an unnecessary R in the middle of it, thinking it's perseverance, but it's tricky in the sense that as Catholics, it's a major part of our faith, yet it's one that we probably struggle with regularly. Not sinning for, say, maybe a day isn't that terribly hard, but what about persevering and making it a week, a month, a year? That kind of perseverance is tough, but that kind of perseverance is what makes saints. Jay Martin here, marketing and media manager at St. Anthony Paddle Catholic Church, and I asked my buddy Bard, which is the Google version of ChatGPT, uh, to explain what perseverance means in a Catholic sense, and it said this, In the Catholic sense, perseverance means to continue in the faith and in good works until the end of one's life. It is a gift from God that allows us to overcome the temptations and trials that we face on our journey to heaven. Then it gave me a catechism quote, actually. It said, Perseverance is the gift of continuing in the good until the end, in spite of trials and difficulties, which is Catechism of the Catholic Church 2015. Then it gave me a Bible verse. It is a necessary virtue for salvation, as Jesus himself said that, he who prepares to the end will be saved. And that's Matthew 10, 22. Thank you, my little AI buddy friend. Looking at the lives of many Catholic saints, perseverance is obviously a common theme. They encountered a hardship or difficulty, whether through their vocation, something with their health, their family, or personal issue, but they persevered through it, were stronger because of it, and ultimately that perseverance helped lead them to sainthood. Looking at the life of one of our four new saints, Perseverance is undoubtedly a major theme in his journey, and that is St. John Newman. And today, I would love to tell you about his life, what he persevered through, and how we can learn from his journey. Now, when it comes to Catholic saints and the United States, it gets a little tricky in terms of who was the first United States citizen to be canonized, who was the first native-born American to be canonized. But luckily, all the people kind of in that conversation about being the first, we have almost all of them in the Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. So St. Francis Xavier Cabrini was the first United States citizen to be canonized. She was born in Milan, Italy in 1850, but took the oath of allegiance to the United States in 1909. And if we're talking about saints who were actually born in the United States, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the patron saint of Catholic schools, seafarers, widows, and loss of parents, was born in New York City in 1774. St. Catherine Drexel, the third new relic, which we'll be talking about next week, was the second American-born saint to be canonized, being born in Pennsylvania in 1858. But the distinction of the first U.S. male saint goes to none other than St. John Newman. St. John Newman was born on March 28, 1811, in a small town in Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic. I couldn't figure out how to pronounce the name of the town he was born in, despite how much I googled it so I'm not even going to try. He was the third of six kids in his family, and he was born and baptized in the village church on the very same day. He grew up speaking German at home and at school, where he excelled, continuing his studies even past the point where most kids his age were beginning to have to work instead. The schools that John eventually ended up attending were very competitive. When he was about high school age, he had a class of about 103 students, and only about 50 of them completed the six-year course. However, John Newman was simply built different, and he wrote that he was actually disappointed with the course's slow pace in his first few years. However, in the middle of his third year of what would essentially be high school, his professor was dismissed for making an appearance at a public gathering while intoxicated, and he was replaced with a much stricter instructor who John Newman did not like at all. 
This man's pace became too fast for many students, and about 20 of his classmates actually dropped out. But in that theme I introduced you with, he persevered and he passed examinations, completing his gymnasium course, which, funny enough, is what they call like high school over there, in 1829. He graduated from the next level of education, his philosophical course, in late summer of 1831, and he faced the choice of becoming a physician, a lawyer, or a priest. And thanks be to God, he chose to become a priest, entering the seminary in the Diocese of Budweiss in November 1st, 1831. Once again, John Newman excelled in his courses. At the end of his first year of seminary, he's one of the few men in his class permitted to take tonsure in minor orders. A tonsure, of course, is that awesome haircut of the reverse bowl cut, where the top of your head is bald and just a ring on the outside, which is a sign of renunciation of worldly fashion and esteem used by many religious orders. Unfortunately, it was abandoned by papal order in 1972, although personally, I'd love to see it come back. But a major turning point in St. John Newman's life came in his second year studying theology, where he read a report about the need for priests in the United States, especially in German-speaking communities. He attended an inspirational lecture given by the seminary director on the missionary activities of Paul the Apostle. After that lecture, both John Newman and one of his buddies, Adalbert Schmidt, I probably mispronounced his first name, so we're just going to call him Schmidt from now on, both individually made up their own minds to devote their lives to missionary work after completing a seminary study. This was hilarious, especially when Schmidt told his plans to St. John Newman, who just laughed about it for reportedly about a month before telling him, actually, I'm going to go with you too. I feel called as well. Now, their intentions of going to America made it absolutely necessary to learn English, but there was no opportunity to do so in Budweiss. But there was this program where the Bishop of Budweiss sent two seminarians each year to a seminary connected with the University of Prague. And in 1833, Newman successfully petitioned his bishop to go study there, where ultimately he hoped to learn English to further that mission and make it a reality to go to the United States. St. John Newman studied hard. However, he did struggle more here than in his previous studies, but he persevered. By the time he finished at the school, he could speak German, Czech, French, English, Spanish, Italian, Latin, and Greek. Now, the time had come for Schmidt and Newman's journey to America to really become a reality. St. John Newman's confessor had heard of the need for more German priests in the Diocese of Philadelphia. And after corresponding with some bishops and directors of seminary, the plan was to send them to Philly. But correspondence between Europe and America was slow, and no definite response regarding Newman was ever received from Philadelphia. And the big plot twist came in 1835, when St. John Newman was supposed to be ordained to the priesthood by Bishop Ernest Another German last name that I'm not going to try and pronounce. Looks like Ruzika, but there's a bunch of fancy squeals above it. However, on June 10th, Bishop Ernest became seriously, seriously ill. Newman had returned to Budweiss, had taken his canonical examination for the priesthood, and had passed, but the ordinations were delayed by the illness and ultimately canceled because the Diocese of Budweiss had too many priests. Some of the priests ordained the previous year still didn't even have any assignments. Now, this was a huge blow to St. John Newman. He wouldn't be ordained a priest before going to America. He wouldn't be able to give his parents the first priestly blessing, and his family wouldn't even be present at his very first mass. His family was heartbroken when he returned home and told them that, hey, not only am I not a priest, but also I'm going to go be a missionary in America. Another plot twist came when there wasn't enough money to send two priests to America, leaving Schmidt and Newman in a tough position. And ultimately, it was decided that St. John Newman would travel to the United States alone. Now, another surprising note is that when St. John Newman went to go see Bishop Ernest after he had recovered from his illness to receive his blessing for the 
the trip, he did not provide dismissorial letters, which is basically a testimonial letter that testifies that this individual has all the qualities necessary to be ordained by another bishop. They were something St. John Newman needed if he wanted to become a priest as soon as he reached America, having already completed all the necessary studies to do so. However, the bishop did not give these to St. John Newman, but still, he persevered and continued with the mission. On the morning of February 8th, 1836, with only about $40 to his name, he left for the United States of America. More than three months later, on May 28, 1836, the ship finally saw land. They remained outside New York Harbor for an extra three days because there was some bad weather and some sick passengers on board needed to recover, otherwise quarantine officials would send them back to Europe. But St. John Newman was so ready to go ashore, he was refused permission to disembark by the captain six times before they finally let him take a rowboat into Staten Island. A few hours later, he took a small steamer to Lower Manhattan, and on the Feast of Corpus Christi in 1836, legend has it, he stepped ashore with one dollar in his pocket. He found a church, got the address of Bishop Dubois, and left to meet him right away. Bishop Dubois, upon meeting St. John Newman, was extremely excited, having an urgent need for German pastors. The bishop told him to immediately prepare for ordination. 17 days after he arrived in the United States, John Newman was ordained to the subdiaconate on June 19th, then to the diaconate on June 24th, and to the priesthood on June 25th. He celebrated his very first mass on Sunday, June 26th. And now the real fun was about to begin. At that time in the US, the Diocese of New York was home to more than 200,000 Catholics, many of them immigrants. There were 33 churches and only 36 priests, three of which at the time were German. So St. John Newman arrived at an impeccable time. His first assignment was to assist in serving recent German immigrants in the Buffalo area. German Catholics in the area were holding services in a literal basement of a church because there wasn't enough room as they tried to raise funds to build a separate church where they could have mass in their native language. Now, German Catholics in the area were so excited when St. John Newman, a German-speaking priest, arrived that they began writing letters to the bishop immediately asking him to be assigned there permanently. But in this first stretch of Newman's ministry in the area, he was all over the place. There were four unfinished churches in the area and they were all spread out all over the place. So St. John Newman chose to station himself in Williamsville, where he had kind of a 12 to 15 mile radius where more than 400 Catholic families lived. 300 of those 400 were German. Now in reading about this part of St. John Newman's life, there's a small detail here that really stands out to me. These immigrants were so passionate and so dedicated and wanted to worship so badly that they had built these partial churches. The land had been donated and they had worked together to kind of collect enough money to build this church. But construction had only progressed so far because of how poor they were. At the time of John Newman's arrival, all they had was only four walls and no roof. St. John Newman said mass for the first time in this roofless church, and some non-Catholics from the area would sit outside throwing stones into the sanctuary. John Newman himself, though, would complete the structure, taking out a loan to finish it, on the condition that a memorial mass would be said for him every year after his death a great stipulation. A powerful precursor to more of St. John Newman's ministry would happen when a school was constructed right by this chapel, with a lay teacher being appointed. However, John Newman found the man's conduct unsatisfactory, dismissed him, and took up the job himself. Two hours in the morning and two in the afternoon, and John Newman quickly became known as a very gifted and skilled teacher. Basically, 1837 to 1840 was St. John Newman just ministering to all these different families, administering sacraments, teaching, just making the rounds as a passionate young pastor. There was a big financial crisis called the Panic of 1837, which really sunk the area even into deeper poverty, but that didn't stop John Newman from ministering, once even reportedly living on only bread for four weeks straight. 
He one time wrote to a fellow priest in Europe, if you want to be a missionary, you have to love poverty. Now, St. John Newman began to make efforts to recruit more priests from Europe fervently, but he was unsuccessful. However, in September of 1839, his own brother came over from Bohemia to take over the cooking and teaching at the school. And he was a big help at the time because St. John Newman's faith and spirituality had began to grow a little dry. Basically, he got burnt out serving so many people in such a large area right out of the gate. Interestingly enough, after consulting with his confessor, he advised St. John Newman become a religious. In September of 1840, St. John Newman wrote to the Redemptorists. Now, the Redemptorists, more commonly known as the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer, had been founded in Naples in 1732 by Alphonsus Liguori, and had grown slowly over the years. The first Redemptorist missionaries had reached America in 1832. Now, at the time that St. John Newman had written to the Redemptorists, they had four main foundations, one in Baltimore, one in Rochester, one in Ohio, and one in Philadelphia. St. John Newman arrived in Pittsburgh on Sunday, October 8th, 1840, where he was immediately invited to sing the High Mass and preach with the Redemptorists. In that letter he had written, he had basically asked for admission to their order. His confessor, after seeing his burnout, had deduced that a lot of it had to come for an intense longing for the company of other priests, and that led him to the doors of the Redemptorists. He took his religious vows as a member of their congregation in Baltimore in January of 1842. He'd go on to serve as pastor at St. Augustine Church in Elk Ridge, Maryland from 1849-1851, and this is really where St. John Newman's ministry went to another level. After six years of working in Maryland, he became the provincial superior for the entire Redemptorist order in the United States. And then in 1852, the Pope appointed him the Bishop of Philadelphia, which at the time was one of the largest cities in the country. It was a polarizing time for Bishop Newman to take over. The waves of immigration in the city had caused a lot of tension with the native-born residents, who at the time were having to compete for work in the difficult economic times. There were anti-Catholic riots in the 1830s, and in 1844, there were a series of riots known as the Philadelphia nativist riots, which were a result of a rising anti-Catholic sentiment because of the growing population of Irish Catholics in the area. Enter St. John Newman, a foreign-born priest with a German accent, and he had his hands full. However, he persevered. During St. John Newman's administration as bishop, parish churches were completed at the rate of nearly one a month. In seven years, he built 89 churches. And one of the most deeply impactful focuses of his time as bishop were his commitment to providing educational opportunities to immigrant children. He was the first ever bishop to organize a diocesan school system as more Catholic parents wanted their children to be taught Catholic tradition. During his time as bishop, the number of parochial schools in his diocese went from one to 200. The enrollment rose from 500 students to 9,000 students. To help provide more teachers, he helped found the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia, an order that now has over 1,500 members in 24 different dioceses in the United States. Now still, during this time, this huge diocese with all these different schools and churches was not wealthy. And along with his focus on education, St. John Newman became known for his personal frugality. He reportedly kept and wore only one pair of boots during his entire residence in the United States. Legend has it that when he'd be given a new set of vestments as a gift, he would give them to the next ordained priest in the archdiocese. He served this area so wholeheartedly. With his love and dedication to the immigrants and the impoverished and everyone in this area, he served as an incredible bishop for many, many years. He led with compassion and commitment to the people in need. Hospitals, orphanages, schools. He helped bring to reality 
the resources that helped make the church more responsive to the needs of the people. Sadly, while doing errands on Thursday, January 5th, 1860, St. John Newman collapsed and died on a Philadelphia street at the age of 48 years old. He was declared venerable by Pope Benedict XXV in 1921 and beatified by Pope Paul VI during the Second Vatican Council on October 13th, 1963, before being canonized by the same Pope on June 19th, 1977. After he was canonized, the National Shrine of St. John Newman was built at the parish of St. Peter the Apostle in Philadelphia, and his remains rest under the altar of the shrine within a glass reliquary, of which some of those relics now reside in the Our Lady of the Angels Chapel here in the Woodlands. So what can we learn from St. John Newman? I think a few different things stand out. Obviously, first and foremost, like I said, his perseverance. Imagine the inner turmoil of wanting to go serve in America as a priest and then not being ordained before you leave. They didn't have airplanes back then. He wasn't taking a carnival cruise line to America. He wrote about seeing icebergs off the banks of Newfoundland and being scared about the thought of what might happen if the ship crashed. That bravery and that perseverance to still get on that boat and take that journey despite not being ordained to the priesthood is wild to me. It is an incredible leap of faith. And time and time again, he faced difficult circumstances. There are many more stories I didn't even include in this. Like a family who tried to start a rumor about St. John Newman having inappropriate relationships relationship with a servant girl, or when there were so many anti-Catholic riots and arsons of religious buildings that St. John Newman actually wrote to the Pope to be replaced as the bishop. But the Pope at the time, Pope Pius IX, insisted he continue, and he did. Also impactful is his focus on education. And I think there's two main points we can focus on in this sense. The first is support of Catholic education systems, most notably our own St. Anthony Padua Catholic School. We should always be praying for and supporting this school. And honestly, this is easier than you might think. Throughout the school year, they have these great spirit nights where certain restaurants and businesses will give a portion of their proceeds that night to the school. So you're telling me I can go get Torchy's Tacos or Crest Pizza and be supporting the Catholic school? That's just a dream come true. And you should do it too. But on the other side of things, I think a focus and conversation on Catholic education should be that it is not an immediately one-for-one -one replacement or substitute for the formation and creation of a young person's faith. And what I mean by that is that the school cannot be the primary place a young person learns how to pray, how to have a relationship with Jesus, those kind of things. That has to begin in the home with the parents being the primary catechists. A true Catholic education begins at home. And I think even St. John Newman, who helped found and create so many Catholic schools and buildings, would agree with me. So when it comes to your own kids or your own family's Catholic education, remember that it can't all just be school books and lessons and quizzes. It has to be something they see from their parents to learn it, to imitate it, and then create it for themselves. And the second main thing to reflect on from St. John Newman's life is care for the poor. Most people probably listening to this live in the Woodlands, Texas, but even as well off as our area is, it would be foolish to try and pretend that need doesn't exist here. But when you do see someone, whether on the side of the road or traveling, do you look the other way? Even if you don't have anything monetary or physical to give them, how do you act? Do you pretend you don't see them? Or do you go past maybe the awkwardness or hesitation you feel to see a brother or sister in Christ, to talk to them, ask them their name, maybe even ask how you can pray for them. Now, granted, they may not all be super enthused about the aspect of receiving prayers rather than money or food, but if that's what you have to give them, then we can hope and pray that they're willing to receive that. And if you do have something monetary or physical to give them, then be bold and help them there as well. To this day, St. John Newman's legacy endures. His dedication to education, care for the poor, and his own faith continues to inspire Catholics and individuals 
of all backgrounds. His establishment of those Catholic schools laid the groundwork for a thriving educational system that we still experience and utilize today. And his deep commitment to the physical and spiritual well-being of every person he met resonated in a way that should motivate us to do the same. If you want to learn more about St. John Newman, I encourage you to go to ap.church relics. Go to his page. You can see some fun facts. You can download a prayer card, a coloring page, and much more. I'm working on some relic reveal videos that I'm going to do solo. I miss you, Mike Gormley. But thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning about this inspiring saint from Philadelphia. Next week, we're talking about St. Catherine Drexel, a saint who has a lot in common with St. John Newman, and I'm excited for you to learn about. Thanks again for listening. God bless. St. Anthony of Padua. Pray for us. Party, party.